I feel for us this huge privilege that for years people sowed in Turkey and some people spent sort of 20 years, say, out there and didn't see a single person get saved, but they sowed the ground, that they were faithful, that they prayed, that they shared the gospel. And it seems like we're coming in at a time where people are having dreams all the time, that people seem to be soft towards the gospel. And it's just this huge privilege of, go, of, of reaping, it seems. And I, well, we haven't obviously started yet, so tell me in two year, I'll tell you in two years' time what it's really like. But it seems like there's an openness to the gospel, and we're reaping where other people have been sowing. So it's a really exciting time. Okay, uh, yeah, let me preach. If you've got a Bible, can you turn to Luke chapter 7? To say one of the aspects I love of living in the, in the Middle East is that so many of the cultural customs and understandings, even in their 21st century form, really reflect what's going on in the Gospels. Because obviously the Gospels were written in a Middle Eastern context. As much as we love to think of Jesus as this person who was from the West. No, he was from the Middle East. And it's fantastic. So you read things, and suddenly living here, some of the things are just opened up in a way that I go, wow, I hadn't seen that when I'd lived in London. Uh, and so I'm loving doing that. I'm loving the privilege of being in a different culture and learning and having my eyes open. Uh, just to say, if you've a book I've found really helpful and really enjoyed, and actually a lot of this preach, to be honest, today is going to be based from, is this book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. If you're going to read a book that kind of helps you kind of think about the Middle Eastern culture, it's a brilliant book. It's got lots of cultural insights that I, kind of, I haven't noticed before, and I go, oh, and then I go, oh, I see that in the culture. So it's really good. Anyway, I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Now, in Luke chapter, uh, if the title for preach, if you want one, would be Costly Love. Now, in the previous parts of Luke chapter 7, to fill you to speed to where we get to when we get to verse 36, really the key question is, who is Jesus and how do we respond to him? So you've got the Roman centurion who seems to be very uh, kind towards the Jews, and he seems someone who's full of faith, who believes in Jesus. You've got Jesus raising uh, a widow's son, and the people are amazed and kind of sort of have this, who is this? You've got John's disciples being sent by John saying, are you really the one? Are you really the one uh, who's the Christ or should we expect someone else? And it says this amazing thing. It says, at that hour, Jesus uh, did kind of lots of miracles and drove out lots of evil spirits. And then he said, go back and say, the lame are walking, those who are deaf are hearing, the good news is being preached to the poor. You've got the Jewish people often lots of the Jewish leaders who seem to be really stubborn and actually struggling with who Jesus is. And Jesus is quite uh, challenging of them and says uh, they're like people who kind of go to a party and don't want to, don't want to celebrate. And they've got all the... Uh, uh, they, they, they're offended by him. And so you've got these kind of two responses going on. One hand on people who almost you wouldn't expect, things like the tax collectors and those who would be called sinners, seeming to draw near to Jesus. You've got others who you'd expect to be those who would be drawing near to him, actually being stubborn in their hearts and not responding. Clearly the kingdom of God's advancing in terms of God's, Jesus doing remarkable things. And then you've got this scene from verse 36 onwards. And it really asks the question, who is Jesus and how do you respond to him? And there's a meal. 
And there are two key players. As we look at this story today, there's going to be two key players. There's one called Simon, who's described as a Pharisee who invited Jesus to this meal. And the other one is this woman who's identified as a sinner. Now, what exactly she did to identify a sinner, we're not sure. It doesn't say. Uh, Commentators seem to hint probably she was a prostitute. That would be a likely thing. But certainly she was someone who clearly had broken God's rules many times and God's standards and was seen as an outsider. Okay, verse 36 to verse 38. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiping them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. The opening sentence of this story is crackling with tension. Now, the reality is we might miss that, but it is. You see, Jesus is invited for a meal at one of the Pharisees' houses. Now, the fact Jesus went to the meal is a sign of Jesus clearly honoring the person who invited him. You see, in the Middle East... You're more honoured hosting than being hosted. Let me explain that. A few a few weeks ago, I was wanting to invite. I'm, I'm I'm wanting to speak to someone who's Turkish to invite them to come and join our church plant. I was speaking to my friends, saying, oh, "I'm going to get them over. I'm going to chat them. I'm going to have a bit of a meal with them, and then chat to them." And my friend said, "No. What you've got to do is you've got to invite yourself to their house and say, "I'm coming to your house. Let's let's talk together, or let's have a meal." So you honour people by being hosted by them. Does that make sense? So, so, you was, so, so the hosting is the particularly... Uh, sorry, it's, it's the opposite to England. So interestingly, so that's really different... Sorry, my, my head's a bit spinning at the moment. So that makes it... So when we read the Bible, sometimes we don't get that. So for example, we look at the story of Zacchaeus, and Jesus says, today I'm coming to eat at your house. And we think, wow, that's outrageous. How could you do that? But actually, Jesus is showing this huge honor by saying, I'm coming to eat at your house today. Or Revelation 3.20. Check out how this is mind-bending and how we normally think. Revelation 3.20, we sort of think when Jesus says, uh, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. We think we're doing Jesus an honor when we open up our heart and he comes in. Actually, it's the complete reverse. Jesus is saying, I'm going to honor you with my presence amongst you. I'm going to come in and honor you, even though you're undeserving, because I'm a king who comes to honor and bring honor to people in a culture where they often don't know it. So anyway, so this is still true in the Middle East. So the host is being hugely honored by Jesus coming. But then he explicitly chooses to dishonor Jesus. So in the UK protocol, we go, for someone's we go for a meal at someone's house. There are certain protocols, aren't there, in terms of what happens. So you go to someone's house, they open the door, they go, Oh, hi, really nice to meet you. Let me take your coat. How are you? Hope the journey was okay. Let me get you a drink. And then if the TV was on in the lounge, probably they would switch it off so you can chat together. 
if those things weren't done in the UK context, we'd go, that's a bit odd. So for example, if someone just, especially if you were the key guest, if you were the key guest, someone didn't say, oh, great to have you come in, take your coat and things, you'd go, that's just a bit odd. Here, basically, all the normal kind of welcoming procedures seem not to have taken place. So in the Middle Eastern culture, when someone came, you normally kiss them to greet them. You would then give them a bit of olive oil and water to wash their hands and feet. Jesus was the guest of honor. Moreover, they referred to Simon the Pharisee refers to him as a teacher. So, he, so actually, he's a special guest. And in the old culture at the time, rabbis or teachers were seen as wanting to have special honor. They were sort of expected to have special honor. But instead, he doesn't welcome him. He doesn't kiss him. He doesn't give him olive oil and water to wash his uh, wash hands, feet. It just seems like uh, he's deliberately making, and this isn't just some accident. This is pointed and deliberate rejection of saying, I'm not honoring you. And then Jesus does this fascinating thing. And again, we probably don't pick it up. Jesus then responds by reclining at the table. And for us, again, we think, hey, what's all about that? And we don't think much of that. But the tradition in the Middle East was after the washing of hands and the washing of uh, the washing of hands, washing of feet, what would happen was the eldest would go and recline at the table first. Followed Almost there would be a kind of hierarchy of how it was done. And here Jesus, he's probably 30-something, so he's probably not the oldest in the room. Nonetheless, he takes it upon himself to say, actually, I'm the eldest here, or I'm the one who's most honoured here, and so chooses to recline first. So you've got this scene dripping with tension, if you like. Jesus is completely dishonored, even though he goes to honor them by his presence. And then you've got Jesus going and sitting down at the table first. Uh, it was it to make the point, actually, I'm the eldest here, or I'm the most honorable here. And kind of what's going to happen in this situation? Now, you've got this sinful woman who's already in the room. Now, the question is, well, how could she already be here? Well, when you had a guest of honor, such as a rabbi in the mix, often what, they ha- often what happened, they'd always have an open house, so p- an open door, so people could come and hear the conversation and the debate and the discussion going in, because he was kind of this public figure. But she wouldn't have been at the table. She would have very much so that the, the Pharisees and Jesus would have been sitting at the table, and she would have been at the edge of the room. Almost this clear demarcation. Now, she's in the room, but she's at the edge of it. She's present, but she's uninvited, but tolerated. And she she knows that everyone in the room thinks of her as a sinner. And there's lots of careful law keepers in the room. I think there's a strong case in this story for the fact that this lady had already heard something of the message of Jesus and the fact that he loves sinners and forgives sinners. Uh, and actually what she's doing here is she's coming to express her thanks for what she's already heard. So Ibn al-Tayyib in the 11th century, a theologian from Babylon, wrote this. There's no doubt, sorry, Baghdad, there's no doubt that the woman previously heard the preaching of Christ and was deeply moved by it and believed and repented and was anticipating a chance to make visible her thanks to the Christ and to confirm forgiveness for her sins and the salvation of herself. Now, because she'd been in the room from the very beginning when Jesus had come in, 
She'd seen Jesus be publicly dishonored. She'd watched it. Now, clearly, she had come uh, prepared to honor Jesus, probably to anoint his hands and his head with oil and this kind of expensive perfume that she brought. It seems like she didn't have a towel or she didn't have water to wash his feet. Uh, She would have assumed that would have already happened because he was welcome to this meal, and that's just what happens. And she watches this person who she's heard this message of salvation and love for sinners... She's heard this message. She watches this Jesus then get dishonored. The one who's extended grace to her in this message that she's heard to an outcast, to someone who's rejected by the religious inner circle. And it seems like she chooses to reverse this dishonor. Now, why the tears? Some people, some early church fathers say, well, the tears are to do with the fact she's crying over her, she's crying over her sin, she's, of, of the lifestyle she's lived. They're tears of repentance, if you like. Now, from Jesus' response later, it seems like actually she already seemed to have known forgiveness, and that's why she did this great act of devotion. Other theologians, and I think this is where it lands, is actually they would say these were tears because she had seen Jesus dishonored in such a public and brutal way. And Origen, the church father, Ambrose, another church father, kind of go that way. They say actually they're tears of saying she'd just seen Jesus publicly humiliated, this one who sent this me- had this amazing message of forgiveness for sinners. I'm reading into the text a bit here, but hold it with me. It could be both, but I think it's probably leaning on towards the honour. Uh, oh, what's the name of the theologian? One of the, one of the, uh, the German who was, uh, it doesn't matter anyway. He, he, he said about, he, uh, when, when crying, she shares in Jesus' humiliation. She's coming in to share in Jesus. Uh, she's feeling the pain of Jesus being dishonoured, and that's what's going on. Now, she, the lady can't wash Jesus' uh, hands and his, and his, uh, or anoint his hair because he's already at the kind of front of the table. It would be inappropriate to kind of step over and do that. So what she decides to do uh, is she decides, his feet are available because they're at the edge. She decides to go and wash his feet. Now, instead of a bowl of water, she washes uh, his feet with her tears. She then does the unthinkable. Now, she could have used uh, probably folds in her clothing to dry his feet, but she chooses to do the unthinkable, and actually she dries uh, his feet with her hair. Now, at the time, it was obligatory or was expected for a woman to cover her hair while in public. In Jewish writings at the time, it said if a woman actually walked around with her hair kind of... uh, down in public, it could be a grounds for divorce. So it was a serious thing in Jewish writings at the time. A woman's hair was seen as sexually provocative. Now, in a way, that's still similar in the Middle Eastern thinking today. So, for example, you've got a recent prime minister in Iran uh, said this when asked why his country insisted on women having hair covered. It's the obligation of the female to cover her head because women's hair exudes vibrations that arouse, mislead, and corrupt men. 
Okay, so she, so she should have had her hair covered, but instead she lets her hair down. In this culture, by the way, it does not like that, so don't feel guilty about it. Uh, you can have your hair down. Uh, but Kenneth Bailey writes this in his book. In traditional Middle Eastern society, a bride on her wedding night lets down her hair and allows it to be seen by her husband for the first time. No one around the room could have missed the overtones of the woman's gesture. By unloosing her hair, she is making some form of an ultimate pledge of loyalty to Jesus. So you've got this remarkable scene of this woman being hugely, in a sense, doing something very dishonorable, if you like, in terms of certainly the people around, if you, as we carry on reading the story, will go, how could she do that? The fact she touches Jesus, the fact she lets her hair down. But actually, she's also making this pledge of saying, actually, I'm his. Almost he's like my husband, if you like. Now, the key question is, how would Jesus respond uh, to this lady who's crossed such boundaries uh, and shown such devotion? Now, we're told what the Pharisees uh, thought. It says this in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now, often in the Gospels, uh, you see it says something that just says Jesus knew what they were thinking. Now, sometimes I think that is genuinely supernatural. So you've got uh, the woman at the well, and Jesus says, oh, you've got five husbands. Now, I think that was just a supernatural thing God the Father gave to him uh, to unlock the situation. But sometimes when it says this, I think we can sometimes almost read it too, such, too in terms of going, oh, that was a supernatural thing. I think it was just that Jesus knew the people he was amongst. Jesus knew the culture. Jesus knew what was going on. So he knew what the people would have been thinking by this act because he understood the culture. And actually, for us in Kingston, for us in Istanbul, we need to get to the place where we understand the way people think and the questions people have. So we can say, I know what they're thinking, and almost address the questions people are asking. Anyway, so the Pharisee clearly thinks uh, that Jesus cannot be a teacher and a prophet because he's allowing himself to be contaminated by this sinful lady touching him. So Jesus then responds by this parable that we've uh, probably all read before. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged correctly. You've judged rightly. Now, no names are given in this parable, but it's kind of clear who Jesus is referring to. You see, both the woman who's a, described as a sinner and Simon the, Simon the Pharisee, they both have debts and they both cannot pay them. Now, admittedly, Jesus is clear here that some people have lived lives that are more righteous than other people's lives. That's why some people have big debts and some people have small debts, smaller debts, but the reality is neither of them can pay the debt. And the only solution for that debt, according to Jesus in this parable, is for that debt to be cancelled, and it can't be cancelled by it can't be paid for by the person themselves. And then Jesus says, "You know what? The one who knows that they've had a huge debt cancelled, 
they're the one who responds with amazing love. They're the ones who respond with costly love, where they can experience dishonor uh, or a humiliation because uh, they've experienced such love that it's worth uh, living for and uh, experiencing humiliation for. And then Jesus goes on and he defends the woman's honor. You see, she had defended his honor, and now he defends her honor at personal cost. Jesus turns to her. Now, I don't know whether you've ever been in a context, in a social context in the UK. It's come to the end of the evening, and then you criticize the host. I'm guessing you haven't. I'm guessing you haven't gone, you know what, the welcome was a bit shabby, and the food could have been better. You probably haven't done that. I haven't done that. In fact, I've never been in a context where people have publicly done that. But then that's fundamentally what Jesus does in this context. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Not just any old ointment, expensive ointment that would have been worth potentially up to a year's salary. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Why? She had known forgiveness and acceptance. And because of that, she loved much. Her costly love, her honouring Jesus at the cost of being scorned by those in the room, was a response to her forgiveness. It wasn't the cause, it was the response to that. And Jesus is making the point in this story that Simon omitted to honour him because he'd not known the heart-changing forgiveness. He'd not known what it was to be loved, forgiven much, therefore he wasn't loving much. Now, indeed, it seems like from this parable, Jesus has taught that this forgiveness was available to him. The parable Jesus taught showed that the moneylender, God, cancelled the debts of both the greater and lesser debtor. Yet from Simon's response to Jesus, it seems like he had not responded to this debt cancellation. Whether he even thought he had a debt, I don't know. Knowing you have a debt that you can't pay and that's been forgiven changes everything. You see, he did not know the thankfulness and the joy of his debt being cancelled. You see, the woman expressed costly love, extravagant honouring of Jesus. And she knew she owed her honour and her forgiveness to Jesus. Now, Simon, to be honest, was in the same situation as the other woman. Uh, he may have lived more righteously, may have more carefully followed God's laws, but he'd still fundamentally fallen short of God's standards and had a debt he couldn't pay. Now for us, which one do we most identify with? Do we identify with the woman? Or do we identify with Simon? You see, whether we have lived uh, or a, a life like the sinful woman, where we've just kind of completely disregarded God and his laws or whether we've tried to live like Simon and live this righteous life and tried to carefully follow God's rules, the story shows us that we have debts we can't pay, that the only way for that debt to be dealt with is by it being cancelled, by, by the money lender, if you like. And this debt cancellation is only possible 
only possible because of the kindness of the moneylender. And if we've received this debt cancellation, it changes absolutely everything. Now, the question is for us is, do we know the joy of forgiveness? Do we know what it is to celebrate that your, our debts have been paid? When we look to God, do we look and see a God who graciously gave us what we don't deserve? Or do we look to a God and think he owes us? If we think we stand in the thing where God owes us, then we're on the wrong side of where we should be in this story. Because actually all of us are on the, th on, the, on the side which says we don't deserve it. Actually, we've got debts to pay we can't pay. But there's a gracious money lender who wants to cancel our debts and has made a way to do that. So this lady responds with costly, extravagant love because she's been forgiven much, much. And Jesus honors her. Now, she crosses this boundary and really is humiliated, but Jesus honors her. Actually, Jesus speaks to her in public. Again, a taboo for a rabbi to speak to a woman. Actually, in the literature at the time, it wasn't even seen as right for a rabbi to speak to his wife in a public place. And here's Jesus turning to this lady who's a prostitute, potentially, and speaking to her directly and saying, you're forgiven. That's why she can love much, because Jesus has restored her honor. Jesus has forgiven her. And because of that, she can know humiliation. She can know costly love. And actually, this lady's love is a mere echo of the deep love that she's demonstrating for the one who's loved her. So in Philippians 2, we know this passage, probably lots of us. It says, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He poured himself out. He took on the form of a servant, being found, born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. Therefore, to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every other name. You see, Jesus knew great honor. Yet the one who is fully God became a human being. The Bible says he was the one who spoke the universe into being. By his word, it's held together. Yet he, who is the king of kings and lord of lords, laid aside his kingly rights to be born as a baby, to live as a servant, to pour out his life for the sake of others, to be nailed to a cross uh, by his enemies, by those who, wanted to, who betrayed him. And then three days later to rise from the dead to secure our salvation and our forgiveness. And why did he, he did that for us? Our costly love is a response to his costly love. And then he says to us, he says, come follow me. He says, you've received much love, now come, come follow me. Jesus, when talking to the disciples, says, follow me. If anyone wants to follow me, he must take up his cross, deny himself, follow me. And there's this sense of where Jesus went was to sometimes to a place of suffering. It was costly. And actually, we've got to go that way as well. And we live this radical life of love. So I just want to urge you today. Live radically. Live costly, loving lives because of the love that you've received. If you're not excited about the fact that you've been forgiven much, come to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you stir in me this revelation that actually I've been forgiven much? 
that I've been made righteousness, that I've become a son of God, and that changes everything. Because actually, that's the fuel for you to live radically in Kingston. That's the fuel for us, some of us to be going overseas. Each of them, it's a case of whether you're in Kingston, whether you're going overseas. Actually, the reality is we need to live lives of costly love, loving Jesus, pouring out our lives to the people in the community, our neighbours, our friends, those we meet. And the reason for that is we've received love, therefore we share it. I just want to finish. Uh, I want to urge you in Kingston to love and pour out your lives for people. Now, for some of you here, you probably have been stirred in the past about going to the nations and things like that. I just want to finish with just showing a small video clip of things we're working towards in the context we're at. Basically, uh, I'm just going to show a quick video of 25 places uh, where there's uh, populations of over a million, and in each of those cities, there's very few people who are Christians. And just to finish with the fact, actually in Kingston, yes, love the people here, but also let me urge you to be those who are also bigger in your outlook, praying and giving uh, for things here. Anyway, let's just finish with this. 